I don't know how many of you have experienced the cinematic masterpiece that is Disney's Cars 2. But I have many times. It was the the first movie that we brought our little boy to at a time when he was full-on obsessed with cars. And it was also the first movie that he fell asleep during. Uh, But after that initial viewing, I saw it many, many times. And I've, I've been able to mull over some of the nuances of the plot. One of the cars is a spy, naturally. But there's this very heavy-handed subplot about a kind of fuel called all-in-all. And it's spelled A-L-L-I-N-O-L, like, kind of like ethanol. All-in-all, very clever. And it's a renewable, clean-burning energy. And it is the official fuel of this big World Grand Prix. And everyone is made to use it. And yet, as they use this all-in-all, cars start blowing out their engines left and right. And by the end of the movie, we find out that the guy who came out with all-in-all, despite all of the promotion and advertising and all the hype around it, was actually trying to work against renewable fuel. And all-in-all was just gasoline by another name. I know. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, I just ruined it for you, so I'm very sorry. Uh, But here's the thing. While I watch this and think about it, and and while I meditate on Cars 2, it occurs to me that this is a great illustration for the kind of trap that Paul sees some Christians falling into. The the idea that we say that Christ is our all in all. We even have a song by that name. And yet so often we find that we are driven by the same old fuel as before. Gasoline by any other name. That rather than being in the Spirit and living by the Spirit, we're living by the flesh and its lusts and its passions. And this is a problem. And we see that in 2 Corinthians, as he is writing to the church in Corinth, Paul is keeping in mind the the people he will call the super apostles, his opponents there who are trying to to make themselves out to be the real apostles, the the bringers of a, a higher and better faith. And he says, essentially, that's what they're doing. They're hanging on to the old fuel, saying, we'll burn by the old fuel and with, with better results and go faster and jump higher and do it all because we have Jesus. And as they do that, they're teaching others to follow in that same path. And what that is, is an obstacle or a stumbling block. That's become kind of a bible word, right? Stumbling block. A stumbling block to one's growth. A stumbling block to one's faith. We see it throughout the New Testament, but it actually you see it in the Old Testament as well, going all the way back to the books of the law. Leviticus 19.14. Most of you know it by heart, but let me read it to you anyway. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. And you read that and go, that should probably go without saying. Right? If somebody, your neighbor is blind and you start putting obstacles or stumbling blocks in front of them, you're a jerk. Of course, as the Bible unpacks this, we find that it's more of a metaphor for putting something in front of your neighbor, your brother, that will cause him or her to trip. It will trip them up. It will slow them down. It will knock them down. And it will halt their progress in the faith. In the New Testament, stumbling blocks apply in two different ways. 
The first is as relates to fellow Christians, particularly immature Christians, new converts, we might call baby Christians, those who have just come to the faith. And and there were issues of of dispute in the New Testament world where people had, had questions about whether it was okay or not to, for example, eat meat sacrificed to idols. St. Paul says, we know an idol is nothing. You, you sacrifice this animal to, you know, Molech or Jupiter or whoever you want, and then you sell it in the market, and I get a deal on it, I can eat it. Idol's nothing. But there are those who see that as sinful. And if they see you, a mature Christian, doing it, they may do it. And if it's sinful in their mind and to their conscience, it is sin for them. And so you create a stumbling block. I preached on uh, this very topic when we were in 1 Corinthians 8, Christian liberty, in which Paul says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And on the the web, I'll link to that passage in, in case you want to hear more about that. But my mind instead is, as we read this text, on the other usage of stumbling block in the New Testament, and that is as involves Christians creating a stumbling block for unbelievers. Tripping them up on their way to the cross. And you know, it can be done in the same sort of way with these uh, freedoms that we say we have and, and non-believers see us exercising them and don't have the understanding of how Christ has set us free from the ceremonial law and, and free to follow Him, and that, that can be a problem. But there are other ways as well that we as Christians in our lives, in our speech, in our hearts even, can create stumbling blocks, obstacles. There's a tendency, this prideful stubbornness that we often have, whether dealing with believers or unbelievers, to say, hey, it's just an obstacle. If you don't like it, go around, right? I'm free to to right here, hunker down and do or say whatever it is that I want to. Scripture says all things are permissible, but remember that immediately after, the Scriptures say, but not all things are beneficial. And so Paul in Romans 14 says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister. And when we say, especially of an unbeliever, Ah, it's just an obstacle. Go around it. Just, if you don't like what I'm doing, ignore it. You're forgetting three things. First of all, they're in the darkness. Our call is to bring the light, but if they're not yet in the light or if they're just seeing the light in the distance and and trying to make their way there, they can't see your obstacle. We need to be mindful of that. If it's really dark out and you drag something into the road and someone runs into it, it's not their fault because they didn't see it. It's your fault. And I'm pretty sure you're the one who would go to jail. Secondly, remember that we're supposed to be bringing them to the cross, not keeping them from the cross. Everyone around you, if they are not in Christ, has a need for salvation, has a need to find their way to the foot of the cross, and you are to lead them there, so that there they can receive salvation. And thirdly, obstacle may not be the greatest translation, because an obstacle is something that just passively sits there, and you can go around. But in the New Testament, there are a number of words that are translated stumbling block or obstacle, and none of them are passive like that, just sitting there. All of them have an active sense. The one used here is proskope, and and there's another one, edkape, and and they both come from a Greek word, which is a, a verbal root, which means to like chop at or to cut into. 
The idea that while you walk along something, you're not just tripping on something. I do this all the time. But, but rather something actively is chopping at, grabbing at, tripping you. An obstacle or a stumbling block that we place in someone's way will actively drag them down. The most common word for stumbling block in the New Testament is skandalon, where we get our word scandal or scandalous. We've talked about this before. You see how a scandal will drag someone, trip them up and drag them down? That comes from a root which means to bend. You know why? Because the literal meaning of it is a snare or a trap. You've seen on uh, the movies where somebody's trapped out in the wilderness and, and they know how to survive and they'll take a sapling or a stick or something and they'll bend it down and tie it in such a way so that an animal will come along and boing, catch it. This is not something passive, an an obstacle, a stumbling block that someone could step over and go around. Rather, this is a picture of a trap or a snare. We see this so clearly when Jesus says, he's talking of how much he loves children and how the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as them. And he says, whoever ensnares, same word, skandalizos is the verb, whoever ensnares one of these little ones who trust me, It'd be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the open sea. Ah, the words from Jesus. He's saying you're ensnaring, though. If you think, well, I'm just doing my thing, and if I happen to drop something, and and either a a child in the faith or a child child trips over it, that's on them. No, Jesus says you've ensnared them, and there is judgment for that. And it's not just the weak who can be tripped up and ensnared. We all must be on guard. You'll remember the second bonehead move of Peter. First, of course, was denying Christ after boasting about how he never would. But his second place bonehead move was that he was walking along with Jesus. He got the ultimate attaboy. You know this because of God, not because of man. He's feeling good. And Jesus says, and now I have to tell you something. We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be rejected and beaten and killed on a cross and on the third day rise again and peter says i'll never let that happen no that will never happen as long as i'm here and jesus turns to him and says get behind me satan you are a scandalon an obstacle a stumbling block a snare to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of god but on the things of men so if jesus has to watch out for obstacles as he walks a sinless life So do we. And as believers, we ought to be horrified and terrified of the very idea that we may become or cause an obstacle for either a fellow believer or for a non-believer so that they no longer are walking toward the cross but are walking away. I'm going to suggest several ways that we do this and then how we can stop. First of all, there's the very innocuous type stuff. Now, we don't even think about We don't even try to do. There's a certain apathy that comes with being in the church a long time. There's a certain status quo where you kind of don't think about the lost or our effect on them, where we don't have a passion. It, the zeal dies down and we no longer think how it is our, not only our job, but our privilege to be the heralds of Christ and the hands and feet of Christ to those who are, no, who are not in his, uh, in his body and who are, who are outside of His grace, and to call them in to receive forgiveness. We, we become content with our little Christian bubble. And what happens is, is when we're in that little Christian bubble, we begin to talk in Christianese so that people don't understand. 
We begin to cut ourselves off from anybody who's not part of this little world and, and, and who's not exactly like us. We find that we have our own movies and our own music and our own everything. And, and I'll say to people, how do you reach your unsaved friends with the gospel? And they'll say, I don't know if I even have any unsaved friends. That's a result of slow neglect. And if it doesn't come from apathy, it leads to apathy. Pop that bubble. Pop that bubble. You are an, a herald. And if, if a herald just stays amongst all the people who already know the message that he or she has, they've failed as a herald. You need to get out to those who need to hear the message and show them the love of Christ and invest in them and care about them. Pop the bubble. We speak in these terms, whether they're the modern Christianese where we talk about, you know, I've, I have a burden to this and God laid it on my heart and, and we have all these words that, that people don't quite know what we mean if they're outside the group. And then we have the theological terms. I confess, I take part in this, this aspect of the bubble. I like to talk in the theological terms. And last week I was talking about how, yes, we need to not be afraid to learn more words more vocabulary, the vocabulary of the faith. I talked about how my son Calvin knows 70 billion Pokemon names and what each one does and how many points they have and how many points they take. You can learn these things if you care to. I tried a little bit. I'm sort of trailing along behind him. Or with sports, right? If, if you can understand the infield fly rule, you can know what justification, sanctification, uh, expiation, all these things mean. I watch football and I go, okay, you got to get 10 yards before you get tackled four times or you lose the ball. But I don't know all the penalties and all the, the minutiae. I just don't care. If I cared, I'm sure I could learn it. Likewise, if we care, we will learn the vocabulary of the faith. There's a vocabulary to this, just like with any pursuit, whether it's computer programming or engine repair or a vegan diet or, or whatever. But here's the thing, there's a difference between how we are catechized inside the church and how we grow in our faith versus how we talk to those who have no thought or maybe even no desire to learn about Christ. I walk up to them and say, look, can I tell you about the, the manifestation of the charisma of the triune God? Like, no, because I don't care. Yeah, we have to learn the language of Babylon again if we've forgotten it because we are sojourners in the land of Babylon. If we can't talk like regular people, if, if as a minister I can't shift out of REV and have a normal conversation, I need to repent of that and pop that bubble. I was listening to a radio show. There, there, there's a new Christian radio station in town. It's not bad. But I was listening to this show. It was a syndicated show nationwide. And it was a Bible answer show. And there's these two guys. And someone called in. And, and he said, what's your Bible question? And she started just pouring out her heart of this situation in her life, and it was heartbreaking. And, and she just kept giving more and more details, and the guy kept interrupting like the, the you know, radio uh, announcer way and saying, okay, come on, come to your Bible question. And she, and she said, well, I'm just, I don't know what to do, and this is happening, and my husband, and this. And, and finally, he, he very curtly said, listen, this doesn't even sound like a Bible question, it sounds like a counseling question. And he, and he kind of just threw her a pat answer, and, and hung up on her. I thought, yeah, you want to show off your Bible knowledge, and yeah, that's the shtick of the show, but you're a minister, and how easy it was to point her in the direction of Jesus Christ. 
and you didn't do it. We need to be mindful of that. Opportunities come, but if we're stuck in our bubble, we will not see them. And you know, there may be two different categories here. The the bubble idea, where we kind of love everybody inside and are indifferent to everyone outside, the world sees that and they're not impressed. Or there's the opposite, where we sort of despise everybody inside the church. And the the, the world sees that as well. This mudslinging, intra-church mudslinging. This territorialism where a church on one corner doesn't embrace and love the church on the other corner, but sees them as the competition. And, and this idea that we love our, our little corner of the kingdom and our culture and our group more than the God that we serve and the extension of His kingdom and the bringing it to the ends of the earth. We, we separate over these secondary issues. You know, th- that's an obstacle. From outside, there's a reason Jesus said they will know you by your love for one another. That's how they know that you are mine. That's how they know that you follow me. There are, there are of course, those with an entirely different gospel who say they, they come in the name of Christ and they're false Christ. Jesus warned about this. And St. Paul, in none of his writings, Galatians, not here in 2 Corinthians, he never pretends that we're all on the same page when that is going on. In fact, much of what 2 Corinthians was written for was to kind of strip bare the idea that these false apostles were false apostles. But for those who have the gospel, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive repentance and the forgiveness of sins, we receive the gift of faith and eternal life, you got that? We can, we can get around the other stuff. Even important issues like baptism or, or the end times or all these different things that we have different views on, they should not create divisions in the church where people break communion. That's what 1 Corinthians largely was written to address. Different sects within Christianity, within the church in one city that we're turning against each other. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Oh yeah, well we follow Jesus, so we win. And, and he said that breaks God's heart let alone these secondary divisions that we invent, usually based on the demographics in a given church, how politically the people there tend to lean, and we turn these into hard and fast bullet points in the creed as if that is the gospel. They will know you by your love for one another. First Peter 2, it should be fresh in your mind somewhat. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And now, yes, we are sojourning in a hostile land where we have Christ and we have each other. And how ironic is it when we deny that and we turn against each other and we divide so that we can be then conquered. Dividing over minor things. It's it's so ironic because we're hated by the world and yet we're turning and hating on each other. It shouldn't be ironic Yes, we should have the debates. Yes, we should have the exchange. Yes, many of these things are important, but they should be irenic, not ironic, meaning pointed toward trying to come together and make peace. So there's the mudslinging. There's the apathy. Maybe most of all, there's the me-first attitude that all humans have that, that should be dying inside believers and yet often is flourishing and burning bright. Serving two masters. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon meaning wealth and increase and and self-glorification. You'll love one and hate the other, or you'll hate one and love the other. There's an overemphasis in many churches on money. There is the opulent lifestyle 
of pastors who say, I deserve to live like royalty because of what I've done for God's kingdom. Going back to the Old Testament, this is already called an obstacle or a stumbling block. Ezekiel 7. They cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their Iniquity, And as Paul defends his apostleship in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, his approach is the exact opposite. Even in 1st Corinthians 9, you know, where we turn every pledge Sunday, because it talks about how we should give with a uh, happy heart, and, and we should give willingly and freely. And he's, he, he tells us in 1st Corinthians 9, he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He, he's essentially making a case for his right to receive payment. But because of what was going on with these super apostles, and their emphasis on money, and their emphasis on self and building themselves up, he chose not to. 1 Corinthians 9.12, If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? After all, he founded the church there. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And so Paul used his secular talents of making tents to pay for his own food and, and board and everything while in Corinth and did not take advantage of the right that he knew he had. In fact, at the end of that chapter, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So we must be ready to set aside our rights for fellow believers so that we do not become a stumbling block for them and for unbelievers who are watching us so we do not keep them from the cross. Finally, scandals. Literally, scandal on scandals, both big and small, become stumbling blocks. There seems like a year does not go by when a prominent pastor or church leader does not have a big public fall from grace. And I have more than once been witnessing to somebody and had them say, oh yeah, right. All this righteous talk and then what happens every other week? You hear about some guy caught up in an extramarital affair or skimming money from the church or, or cheating so that his book becomes number one or whatever the case. It's clear that it's just a bunch of talk. But there's also the smaller scandals that only affect the few people who are watching you. And those too can become an obstacle or a stumbling block. I know I've used this before a couple years ago, but it's just, it's just too good not to tell you again. Roland Hill's old school anecdote of the preaching barber. He, he didn't make tents, he made wigs, and then he preached the gospel as well. And he made a wig for one of his hearers, and he made it badly, and at nearly double the usual price. And when anything, says Roland Hill, when anything particularly profitable escaped the lips of the preacher, the hearer would observe to himself, Excellent! This should touch my heart! But oh, the wig. But oh, the wig. There are these things that we do in our lives that are self-serving. Whether you cheat a little bit here or there or lie. Whether you gossip and are quick to tear other people down and the world is watching or are slow to forgive others. There's been many times when I've been officiating a funeral, someone will stand up and say, oh, I'll tell you what, old, old Johnny, he really could keep a grudge. <laughs> and I think, wow, that's not cute. That's the least Christ-like thing we can do. We all struggle with it, of course. 
But we should never give in to it. Because when the world sees us unwilling to forgive or slow to forgive, they say, well, what a, this whole thing's about forgiveness. If it's not real in you, how is it real in him? How is it real at all? That's a scandal. That's a stumbling block. And all of this can happen while outward religion continues in full blast, full steam ahead. Again, going back to Ezekiel, there was a big deal with stumbling blocks there. He says, For any of the house of Israel, and this is God speaking through Ezekiel, For any of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates itself from me, taking his idols into his heart, and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, the Lord will answer him myself. We need to confess and repent of the stumbling blocks that we have become, the stumbling blocks that we have dropped in the paths of others. Not only confess to God, but to them. You see, we will stumble. We're all sinners. We will stumble. We won't be a perfect witness to those who are trying to reach with the gospel. It's just not going to happen. And yet, if we don't point at ourselves in our witnessing, hey, look at me, look at what God's doing here, look how great I am, but rather to the cross. And when we stumble, and when we cause others to stumble, we go to them and say, I confess and I am sorry, and please forgive me. God's still working on me. That's what this whole thing's about. He's forgiven my sins, and now he's working on me and making me more and more like Jesus. Your witness is bolstered. And we remove and clear away all the stumbling blocks but the main one. And what is that? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's called a stumbling block, a scandalon in Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Talked last week about how there is a passage in Scripture about how anyone who hangs from a tree is cursed of God. And so when the, the people who embraced those Scriptures heard Jesus, the Messiah, was hung from a tree and died, they said, well, he's cursed of God. That's, that's a stumbling block to me. The cross itself is a stumbling block. But we understand, as those whose eyes have been opened in faith, that he was cursed of God on our behalf so that we would not be so that we could be blessed of God and have a relationship of blessing. The cross is the only stumbling block that should trip up anyone approaching God. And and, and we, the the church, need to keep the the way pure. Remember, Remember that Old Testament passage that then John the Baptist picked up on? Make way for the Lord. Clear the path. Make His way straight. Well, we need to make the way in the other direction straight and clear as well. So that those who are watching us, knowing that we profess faith in Christ, will find that there are not a litter of stumbling blocks to trip them up and make them say, this path, narrow as it is, and covered in stumbling blocks and obstacles, is not worth walking. And I tell you, there is going to be another time when you're going to look at your life, you're going to look at those who you're trying to reach with the gospel and go, oh, I've done it again, I've stumbled and I've caused them to stumble. And if you've looked at me and I've caused you to stumble, I confess and and I repent of it and I I ask your, your forgiveness. But all the same, we need to remember what Paul's main point was here. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. 
Behold, now is the day of salvation. In Sunday school, we read a text in which Jesus, on the Sabbath day, healed a man. And we were talking about traditions and and the Pharisees and all this sort of thing. But there's something else to learn in that passage. The man had a paralyzed hand. It's called a withered hand. And and he was unable to earn a living. and, And in that society, he was marginalized. And Jesus was there. And he knew that the traditions of the people, he was going to cause a stumbling block for some. But in the name of the Gospel... In the name of showing what Christ came to do, he didn't care. He was willing to point people in the one direction they would find life and healing. And so he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And as he stretched it out, it was healed and became just as robust and healthy as the other one. And in this we see that God wants to heal us in Christ. And the only thing we need do We don't need to earn His love, earn His salvation. We don't need to clear up our lives and make everything perfect before we come to the foot of the cross. We only need to reach out our withered hand, trusting that He will grasp it and heal us and bring us into His presence. Yes, the the cross is a stumbling block. Yes, it's foolishness. Allow it, if you have not put your faith in Jesus yet, to trip you and knock you down on your face. That's the position for receiving salvation. Yes, it is foolishness. Embrace the foolishness. The world's foolishness is God's wisdom. Embrace the fact that a man died on a tree. And in that death, our sins were forgiven because he, God in the flesh, was sinless and died for us. He died as our sacrifice, as our substitute, and rose again so that we could be perfectly clean in God's eyes. If there are any stumbling blocks here today, I pray that God would remove them. And Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would open wide the doors of salvation and shine a light of truth on where they are. And Lord, that the path too would be well lit by your word and free of obstacles so that anyone today who does not know you does not truly know you as their Savior, would find their way to the foot of the cross, saying, I come to you dirty. I come to you diseased with sin. I come to you asking for your grace and mercy, knowing that you will clean me, wash me, make me new, and heal me, and lift me up, so that I can walk in your ways. In your holy name we pray. Amen.